You're listening to Pressed Podcast. Don't talk, just listen. Listen, listen. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Press Podcast with your favorite host, Ayana Willoughby-Evans. And today I have a very special guest. I know the last season I talked about how I've struggled with some issues around my weight and just conversations about my weight. And y'all hit me up and y'all told me y'all had the same struggles. So I had to go out and find somebody that we could all talk to that is licensed and qualified because these conversations are great, but... I think we need some help. So without further ado, hello, Whitney. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here. Miss Whitney is a registered nurse. She's very qualified. A dietitian. She's a nutritional counselor. She just does a lot. She's a go-getter, honestly, the epitome of a go-getter. She owns her own private practice called Bluff City Health. I think she's going to drop a few gems on us today. Guys, this is just... A warning, we are about to talk about some very sensitive topics like eating disorders. So if this is a topic that is a little bit too sensitive for you, feel free to just skip on to the next episode. I won't blame you. Whitney won't blame you. We're all here to just support. So I like to start off every episode by asking my guests, who are you outside of your accolades, your degrees? Oh, I love that question. I would definitely consider myself a very spiritual person of of Christian faith. Um, I'm a proud and happy wife and mom, so I've been married going on 10 years, so we're trying to figure out what we're going to do for our 10-year anniversary, and I have a soon-to-be six-year-old, so I, I love, love, love spending quality time with them, and I am obsessed with Love is Blind reality TV. Somebody told me I need to get into it. Like, it's really good. It's so good. It is so good. That's like your guilty reality TV pleasure? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I really need to check it out now because this is like solidifying the fact for me. Okay. So you said that you're a wife and a mom. 10 years coming up. Congratulations from a newlywed. I hope to get there. (laughs) Oh, yes. Congratulations. Marriage is awesome. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful journey. Both of us were college athletes and my husband was training for, so I I moved to Memphis to do my graduate work and my husband was training with the Memphis Grizzlies when the NBA lockout happened um, and was here. We actually met at like a singles church thing. How did he like sweep you off your feet? Okay, so we're both very tall. So he's six five, and I'm like five eleven and a half, six feet. Um, and I think he thought I was like talking to another guy at the event, but the guy was like five two. No shade to women, tall women that like shorter men. That's okay. If that's your thing. Um, but I was like, no. Uh, so we just started talking about basketball and what it was like being a you know both of us being a college athlete and um, yeah. Wow. And what was that process like being a college athlete and having such a demanding major? Yeah. Yeah. So I always wanted to be, I always knew I wanted to do something in the sciences, but being a college athlete, it's just hard. One, because they have so many sanctions, NCAA has so many sanctions and regulations on like working while you're playing. And then basketball, it's a two semester sport. And so it kind of just, it made it challenging on the study. So that's how I ended up choosing to be a dietitian first, became a registered dietitian and then went back to nursing school. You know, I will say I was very blessed to have a black female head coach, which um, is not as rare now, but was definitely, you know, not as common back then. 
And even though I was a D1, um, she, we were in mid-major D1, so she really instilled in us, like, even if y'all make it to the WNBA, the pay is not that great. So you need to do what you need to do to graduate and be successful. So I just appreciated that. And I um, I think just, I loved being a college athlete. I mean, honestly, like, I'm totally not ashamed to say this, but I think it's opened so many doors because when people know that you're a college athlete, you're already used to working in like high stressful team environments. Um, and you're quite frankly used to having to work with people that y'all may not see eye to eye on a lot of things. So, <laughs> um, I've gotten a lot of jobs early on just from networking and, you know, being a, being a former athlete. So, so where along the journey did you decide that you wanted to open your own private practice? Like how did that pop up? So I focus a lot on eating disorders, body image, disordered eating, and there are not quite frankly, a lot of people that look like me doing that. And so there's less than 2.6% of registered dietitians in the U.S. are Black. And even less than that work in eating disorders. So I'm probably one of five, maybe 10 in the entire country Black eating disorder dietitians that have been doing it longevity-wise as long as I have. So it definitely was challenging deciding to open up a private practice, knowing that I was going to focus um, on eating disorders and particularly wanting to work with people of color. For people who are listening right now and they kind of know what an eating disorder is or what disordered eating is, but they don't really know. Can you define it for us? There's so much stigma around eating disorders. And when you look at eating disorders, it is a disruption. It is a disruption and a market distress of how one nourishes their body that can lead to like significant and, and clinically observed alterations in mood, emotional distress, dysregulation. I kind of hesitate on saying that because in the DSM-5, which is like our um, psychiatric kind of Bible, so to speak, on when we diagnose mental health disorders, it's very stigmatized by weight. And so again, a lot of people of color aren't accurately diagnosed and screened based because their BMI does not fall into the underweight category. And so if we don't fit that mold, or if we have it you know, lost a significant amount of weight, we don't think we will also struggle with a restrictive eating disorder. So it looks different on everyone. Absolutely. That's actually a really good point because I saw on TikTok, some women were saying that they were going through like a mental health problem. Like even though, you know, they were getting in shape to other people, they were truly suffering and no one else could tell because they weren't technically like, skin and bones, you know? So what is so interesting is the majority of my adolescents who are adolescents of color with eating disorders went to predominantly white high schools. And I think it, it definitely shapes how you view uh, your body, body image, that like protectiveness of like assimilation, because if everybody around you is thin or blonde and you don't look like that, you're like, okay, well, what is wrong with me? You know, or especially young girls, like young black girls, young girls of color, our body goes through puberty different. We don't go through puberty the same as our young white counterparts. And so a lot of times are often shamed in the black community of through the adolescence, you know, and that it can be really, really hard if you go to, you know, predominantly white high school and then you go to predominantly white college it influences how you view um, beauty standards and like the ideal of what beauty is. 
you cannot look at somebody and see that they have an eating disorder. Just like you can't look at somebody and think and say you're schi- you have schizophrenia or you have bipolar disorder or you have anxiety, you know? And it's so interesting because eating disorders are the second deadliest mental illness. So they're right behind um, opioid um, abuse. Yeah, they're the second after opioid and substance use and misuse. Eating disorders is the second leading cause of death for mental illness wise. And this is going to sound like a crazy question, but men also can have eating disorders, right? Yes. And you brought up such an interesting point. I actually was having this conversation with a sports RD earlier. What's so interesting is that you definitely, when you're a college athlete, it's like a part of your identity, right? And depending on like where you go to school and then if you decide to play professional, I'm not going to lie and not say that like we are catered in certain aspects because that would be false. But so much of your identity and your self-worth is tied to your body. And so when you stop playing, there's like this, there's a lost sense of identity and like self-regulation. And for all the men out there, I know this is going to sound weird, but as women, as, as female college athletes, it's usually instilled upon us early on that we're likely not going to go professional. Even if we do go professional, we're probably not going to be playing professional that long. We don't get the reimbursement that our male counterparts do. We all know that to be true. So we kind of plan for that. There's an identity crisis that happens. We definitely, you know, struggle with body dysmorphia, body dysregulation, eating disorders. But what is so interesting is I do have a lot of men that I see and I see a lot of disordered eating patterns in male athletes, but they don't connect the dots because no one has ever broached the idea to them that they could suffer with body image or they could suffer with dysregulation with how to self-nourish. Because usually you have chefs, you have personal trainers, you have a whole team. And so when that stops, what then do you do? Like, how did you feel when you left your sport? Were you kind of lost for a second or because you had such a great coach, you were able to make that transition smoothly? Oh, totally lost. Like, I mean, and me and my husband are like still competitive. Like we will throw down on some spades today. Like it is so bad. Um, I was just so used to just being so competitive to like people, people who aren't like highly competitive it, it can be off-putting when you're like you know around highly competitive people and so that was a really hard adjustment how do I even like to exercise because I've been so ingrained that like I'm exercising for a goal for an achievement it was very hard to just like go on a walk you know which is why you see so many athletes struggle with compulsive um, exercise because we it's not a switch that we can just turn on and off. Like we've been operating under this like high performance kind of guide for so long. It's like, you know, doing yoga. I was like, what is this? You know, it took a long time to like just enjoy the practice of yoga. That's actually pretty cool. I'm glad that you said that you and your husband are highly competitive because I, I was like, I was a cheerleader. I was a gymnast and yeah, we did compete, but it's not like ingrained in me. Like I have to beat this person or I have to be the best at this. And we'll play like card games, tonk, like any game. And he's like talking junk. Like he really wants to win. We'll go bowling. And he like really takes it serious. Like he's going to win a prize after he wins the game. Like I've never seen anything like it. And his family, he has a family full of athletes. His family's also competitive. I I've grown to love it. Like it's a really fun environment. At first I was kind of like, wait, y'all are serious. Like y'all, this is, 
Yes. It's like instilled. Like even our six-year-old now, like we're like trying to keep an eye on her, but she is like also highly competitive. Like she hates to lose. Like she is like, I will win at all costs. I know it's bad. We're we're trying to figure out that whole like gentle conscientious parenting thing. Uh, both of us being college athletes. So it's hard. It's hard. Is that how you stay motivated in your practice? Like, are you competitive even with your practice? Not really. I'm such a people person that like, it it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard opening up a private practice working with people. It was more of imposter syndrome because I didn't see a lot of black eating disorder providers doing what I do. Even imposter syndrome, we got to dive into that too, because I hear there's no cure for it. You're just supposed to pretend until you feel like it's, it's real. I, I mean, the whole like fake it till you make it is so true. And so what things are you doing with your daughter to help her stay on the straight and narrow as far as healthy eating, healthy habits, weight management, and things like that? What we really do is we treat food as a neutral in our house. Like we are not like, we don't teach bad food, good foods. Like we don't attach any type of moral value to food at all. Um, And we also don't make her like clean her plate, which is like, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm biracial, but like I, my dad is black and he's one of 14 and I grew up in Texas. So like super close, like all athlete family, very close, like, you know, in the country. And so it was a very much of like, you're going to sit here and finish all of your food. So really thinking now, like, how can I teach her? Like, what is satisfaction? What is hunger? What is fullness? How can she use her voice to let us know that she's done? you know, giving her that choice while also like protecting how she feels about her body. Because so many young black girls grow up hating their body, but there's not a avenue or lane for us. And there's a lot of misconceptions that like every black woman loves their curves. Right. And so again, really, really knowing just that we go through puberty different than our white counterparts and teaching her to, you know, love her body. We don't, we use fat as like a neutral word. So we don't, you know, there's some people that like, they very much identify as fat abolitionists and want to embrace the word fat. And so teaching her that fat is not bad and that um, health health looks different on anybody and everybody. Oh, yeah. And we give her options, you know, like, again, like, it, we I have a big best $10 investment I ever did. You know, those like Walmart, um, like plastic shoe things that you can like hang over a door. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. So it's like over the pantry door. She, we put snacks in there. We give her choices like dinner wise, but it's like still like obviously being parents, but it's like, okay, we've had, you know, three slices of cheese pizza. If you're still hungry, let's, here's another option. And these are the other two options that you can choose from. So we do a lot of variety. We don't do rewards with food, like uh, with sweets at all. You know, if, if you want three cookies and milk, go get three cookies and milk. If, if that, if it's, you know, snack time and you want that. After that, if you're still hungry, let's get an apple and peanut butter. But we don't reward her behavior with food. We usually reward her behavior with an experience. Wow, that is really something to keep in mind. And I like how you mentioned you're trying to teach her just to identify whether or not she's full. And if she's not, you know, she can move on to something else or, you know, just kind of switch it up if need be. But I had to do that with myself like at my big age, because I kind of grew up on the notion that like a woman never clears her plate. 
So I never ate all my food. Like I still cannot finish my food to this day. Like I will have a plate of food and it's very difficult for me to finish it. And it's not because I don't want to. Now I physically cannot. But I think that's so cool that you, you're teaching that literally from the ground up so that she doesn't have to relearn it later. There's all these food rules that we as a society start like reinforcing. And it's like, well, why is that? You know, what does that mean? And so really teaching her that like, sometimes you're going to be satisfied and sometimes you might be full, but you might not be satisfied, you know? So what is like, what does satisfaction look like for you? And sometimes it's not always food. So how do you help clients that, or, or patients that are older? I think I would probably say my, my oldest client right now is probably about 58, but I hold a lot of space for particularly clients of color that are dieting and want to lose weight because a medical practitioner has told them to, right? And so really exploring, because we know intentional restriction puts stress on our body. And anytime starvation and restriction, our cortisol goes up. I want to say it was the endocrine society just came out and looked at particularly in diabetes. So we do a lot of like race-based medicine in this country for some reason. And you always see that, right? You see, um, it'll say African-Americans, you know, age demographic, highest risk factor for diabetes. Latina Americans, highest risk factor, you know, 30 to 40 for cardiovascular disease. But they don't look at like the effects of systemic poverty, of social determinants of health, of racism, of lack of sleep, um, and how that plays a role in health outcomes and behavior. So for my older clients, I do a lot of like psychoeducation with that. Of like, okay, why did this doctor tell you because you're a diabetic that you have to lose weight? Because again, if you are so stressed out about losing 10 pounds, stress, we also know influences blood sugar, you know? And so for them, I really try to be an advocate and really explain things, you know, to where they can also advocate for themselves with different providers. Since we said earlier that an eating disorder does look different on different types of people, how do you identify it? If you're just, you know, sitting home listening to this right now and it's like, yeah, I might have that. What are the signs? I would say like if you are distressed, like if you think about eating carbohydrate and that like somebody says like, let's go out for pizza and you immediately associate pizza with carbohydrates and that overwhelms, distresses you to your core and you're like, I cannot do that. There's like a fear response. I would say, okay, you might not have a full-blown eating disorder, but there's definitely some distress, possible disordered eating that is warranted for, you know, a screening and some assessment. So I think having um, any type of distress, overwhelming fear about food items, groups of food, um, if you have a lot of shame and guilt after you eat food, a lot of times people will engage in restriction and they think that's okay, but they have a lot of shame with binge eating. And so they don't necessarily want to work on the restriction, but there's a lot of shame and guilt for binge eating. I would say that um, sensory, you know, ARFID, um, I actually see in the Black community a lot, and ARFID stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And you see it a lot with people that have sensory aversion. But a lot of times what happens is a young kid will have that particularly young black male and they'll just say, oh, he's autistic. 
oh, he's at, he has ADHD and they'll bypass getting him into like a speech pathologist, a speech pathologist or an RD or somebody that can really work with like food and texture issues. I'm glad that you said earlier that, you know, everything is not a full fledged eating disorder because there are steps, right? There's different kinds of aversions to food, right? Yeah, I definitely think not everything is an eating disorder. Some people do have, again, disordered eating. I definitely think it's still warranted reaching out for help and guidance with that as well. You know, and definitely, you know, picky eating is not the same thing as an eating disorder. I definitely want to stress that for the parents out there. Um, Some kids are just picky eaters and that's okay. (laughs) For families that are close, if you're noticing like different eating habits for other people how should you intervene yes okay so i don't know about y'all's family but like my aunties it it would be like i don't know what it is and i'm gonna speak for like southern black families like commenting on a weight is not a greeting but for some reason that typically happens in the south And so I think really normalizing that, like, we don't have to comment on anybody's bodies at all. When you're noticing any behaviors, like somebody is, you know, not eating at all the entire day and only eating one meal a day, you know, pulling them aside and just gently asking, you know, what's, I see that, you know, you're not nourishing your body, like what's coming up for you? Because sometimes people don't even notice these behaviors. They're just, they're working, working, working. And it's like all of a sudden seven and they're like, they're so overtly hungry, they're literally like gorging themselves. Yeah. And I know you, of course, have a website, but if any of the listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So probably through Instagram, I have a lot of resources. Um, I get a lot of inquiries about people looking for dietitians or therapists. And so We actually created a BIPOC database for ED providers. So you can search your state, find a provider, um, and all that's on my Instagram. So it's WhitneyTrotter.rd. Thank you guys so much for listening to the latest episode of Press Podcast. Whitney, of course, dropped many gems, just as I thought. But if you found something in this episode that you want to maybe look up or research a little more, feel free to go to the link of the description of this episode or Whitney's website to get a little bit more information about disordered eating or, you know, just eating disorders in general. Thank you guys for watching and listening. And thank you, Whitney, for being featured.